Amen. And as we say, may God write it on our hearts. That we might not sin against him. It's a bit difficult for him to write this one on hearts unless it's studied by us. Uh, one pastor began his preaching series on Obadiah with the words, turn in your Bible to the table of contents. <laughs> because if you don't, if you just blink in your Old Testament Bible reading, you'll miss this little book, right? And if you've hung around Shilin enough, you know, you know, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, right? Or other songs you've learned that help you know that you have Joel, you have Amos, and then you have Obadiah. And so I hope you have been able to find it. We just give you the page number, right? So it helps, which is, I hope, very helpful. Hold your place in uh, this morning in what will likely feel like an obscure book from Israel's history while I tell you a story that feels like an obscure moment from Baptist history here in Texas, okay? They'll be connected, but just listen to this. You may be familiar uh, with some famous historical feuds where people are like arguing with one another. Maybe like, you know, Europe, uh, White Europe, uh, or Europe and Clanton, right? This is an old feud in the OK Corral. You've seen the movie Tombstone, you know what I'm talking about. A more famous one, of course, the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Famous family disputes in America. But you probably haven't heard of the 1904 train shootout between Texas Baptists. Probably haven't heard of that one. But let me tell you about it. It's interesting. John Rutledge is a Texas Southern Baptist who posted a centennial piece. So 100 years uh, after this event. In 2004, he wrote a piece uh, really talking about, and it was in the Baptist standard, and it's about a literal shootout on a train that happened between two prominent Baptist leaders in 1904. Now, brace yourselves for this story, okay? It's not made up. Um, and for better or for worse, it's actually a part of our immediate context uh, for our own selves historically. The shootout was the horrible climax of a 12-year feud between James Britton Cranfield, who was the editor of the Baptist Standard, and S.A. Hayden, who was a rival editor of the Texas Baptist um, and Herald, okay, two rival magazines. Uh, a pastor from the Baptist General Convention of Missouri, he's a historian, summarizes the issue that was at hand between these two when he writes this, quote, strong personalities, geographical rivalry, competing institutions, warring publications, along with an underlying current of differing ecclesiology, which is differing thoughts about what is and is not a church and how a church should function. All of these things make up the tapestry of this famous Baptist controversy called the Hayden Controversy. <laughs> My favorite findings in studying this was Rutledge explains that uh, personal animosity between the editors fueled the feud, but denominational discord stoked the flames. Cranfield's Baptist standard resonated with the Baptist General Convention of Texas. Hayden and his paper affiliated with the Baptist Missionary Association, which actually sought to undermine the BGCT, particularly in East Texas. You hear what I just said? You hear how close to home this story actually proves to be? Now, some of my actual favorite, that, that, that actually is a favorite of my, like historically, because it, it really does show like how something can be connected. But even more so, my real favorite favorites of this piece um, show kind of the historical skid mark that this situation was. Quote, the Wild West still cast its long shadow over Texas in 1904. And Cranfield, a former cowboy of the Chisholm Trail, walked in that sometimes violent shade. He once wrote, Cran this, is, this is Cranfield, quote, the fact was that I put my revolver in my pocket every morning when I put on my trousers. Indeed, I would have felt more comfortable going up the street without trousers than I would without a gun. It would have been somewhat more conspicuous and far more dangerous for me. There's a little bit more. Cranfield, quote, packed more than his Bible as he boarded a train bound for the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting in 1904. The sword of the Lord might be useful for converting sinners, but when he confronted scallywags, the cowboy editor also carried his revolver, end quote. True to their contentious character, what ended up happening was Cranfield and Hayden got into an argument. And true to their Western heritage, they drew their guns and they fired. Now, fortunately, no one was hurt on the train, much less killed. 
how do I tell you this story? This story is insane to us today. I mean, it really is, thankfully, right? <laughs> thankfully, it is insane. It's also funny. However, if we were to actually study it closely and to learn what happened before this moment on this train, if we handled carefully the context of what produced the magazines on both sides, if we actually thought about the worldview that these people possess in the cultural moment that they lived in, in 1904, if we studied that moment historically carefully, if we really understood the people involved and we didn't just caricature the cowboys uh, you know, that, that are in this story and we really got into the weeds of it, here's what would happen. We would see it differently. We would likely end up even concluding differently. Now, some obviously sinful things of the situation would not change. We would condemn getting a gun out and trying to shoot someone because you can't agree about something. We would agree with that. That's because God does not change. And the things that are moral and the things that are true and right and beautiful and good always belong to God. And they don't change with time. But all the ways that we would evaluate those things and how someone applied them in any story is really what I'm after here, right? The things that are holy, loving, and are from God do not change. Everything around them can change. And the next three weeks that we're going to be you know, together in the book of Obadiah, you'll be happy to know, some of you, we're not going to be learning about Texas Baptist history, thankfully, Okay. I bring that up because just over 100 years ago, that's out of your reach. You would have to study. You would have to understand. You would have to think. You would have to spend time. And, and it may even frustrate you, but you would have to be patient in understanding what actually happened there to get an accurate understanding, divvy out from it what was unapologetically absolutely true of God and therefore had direct implications, and then understanding in all of the ways that the other things have to be explained. In the same way, this is what we're about to do with the book of Obadiah. The message of Yahweh through the prophet Obadiah needs to be heard. It needs to be heard again. It was heard when it was said. It's been heard throughout the church's history. It needs to be heard now. And this overview sermon this morning, I, I hope, will serve as the necessary background that we need to understand the book of Obadiah. And then from the understanding we gain today, I hope it will leave us hungry and thirsty for the righteousness and the justice that it actually promises that is revealed by God against evildoers. Now, I picked a controversy from history to intro with because if you paid attention to the reading, and this is the one morning that we're reading all of it, next week we'll just begin to read sections. You can always return in your own study, though, and I would encourage you to, to read the whole letter, or, the, or excuse me, the whole, the whole prophecy, because it's useful. It's, it's short enough to do that with, and anytime you can do that is useful to you. But it is a controversy. You can hear in the language about Edom, whoever that is, we're going to find out today, and, and Jacob or Judah as nations. You can hear the controversy. You can imagine the train rides and the guns pulled in their own context, even as you just read it generally, right? And you can feel the weight of the controversy. And so our outline this morning is going to try to, I think, follow the theme of understanding the controversy at the center of this Old Testament prophecy, okay? It's happening between Judah and Edom, or we could say Jacob and Esau, and we'll get into that. Three things that's going to help us do that this morning. Three questions, okay? Our outline follows three F's with three who's, okay? Who fuels, who fights, and who finishes this controversy, that's the questions we're asking as we do an overview of this book together this morning. Who fuels this controversy? It's going to be our first point. Here we're going to deal with the characters and how they fit in this thing. Secondly, we're going to ask who fights in this controversy? That's dealing with the content that are in these 21 verses and how it fits. And then finally, we'll ask who finishes this controversy? And this morning, I want to deal with Christ and how he fits even in the pages of Obadiah. Sound good? Amen? Something? All right. Who fuels this controversy? Part one. Well, before we explain who is involved in the controversy, we need to source this thing out, and we need to figure out if any bias is in play, right? And so you understand the inclination of this today. Uh, you would maybe sit here today and hear the story I told you and think, what are your sources? 
Because even some of the things I read have a BGCT flair to them. That's because I was mainly in BGCT archives finding the story about 1904. Someone wrote that history and therefore it had a worldview and therefore it presented it to me in such a way. And if my intro doesn't get you, here's how you do understand why context matters. <laughs> if you are a far left liberal in our country today, you roll your eyes at Fox News reports. You just roll your eyes and dismiss it. Maybe turn violent in your understanding. If you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're an alt-right conservative, CNN News and the reports that they give make you long to be on a 1904 train with someone, right? Right? I mean, that, that's how this happens on a large scale on the extremes of our society. Why? Biases. Biases, right? Everyone comes to history, comes to understanding, comes to figuring something out, and they bring their biases. And you see that in the way we pick our news. So let's meet Obadiah and handle any biases. You ready? Look at verse one. Obadiah, right? The vision of Obadiah. Stop. Now, you want to meet Obadiah? You just met him. More so than any other Old Testament prophet, the prophet Obadiah, used by Yahweh, what we know about him literally, biblically, and historically is what I just read to you. <laughs> okay? So you want to talk about somebody with no biases, no connections that we are privy or allowed to know as we study Old Testament history? We know that there are roughly a dozen Obadiahs mentioned in Scripture, but this one is only told about who gave this message from God in this, right here, these verses. So good luck, right? But you cannot research this guy and think, I can reject his message if I can just see some things in his background. And that's intentional. You need to meet Obadiah and you need to meet the, the, the vision of Obadiah and then the one that says what he is, thus says the Lord. You need to see he's a servant of Yahweh. That's what Obadiah's name means, servant of Yahweh. And we don't know anything about his backstory or his preference. We just know his message. And this is helpful. Concerning the idea of Old Testament prophets and how they function, um, and how you should think about receiving this message. One theologian helpfully says this, quote, unlike kings or elders or even priests in the Bible, prophets wielded no political power. Indeed, although false prophets had often functioned as lackeys of the royal courts, the divinely authenticated prophetic institution in Israel, it exhibited an ad hoc flavor. Do you know what that means? It means that what they said was necessary, needed, and clear, and that's it, okay? They weren't interpreting, they were telling, <laughs> okay? They were not uh, giving the sense, they were giving the message, and meaning what they said was directly from God, disconnected, though informing it, disconnected from any political opinion they may have. This forced them to be ostracized, often mistreated, cast aside. If you read Jeremiah, larger, major prophets, if you read Isaiah, you will see their personal stories captured in a way that Obadiah, the Obadiahs isn't. And what will you see? They are a weeping people. They are a castigated people. They are cut out from the body. Oftentimes the message they have leaves them hated by the very people that God is giving the message to. So get the bias out of the way and realize that straight from heaven comes the message, the vision of Obadiah to a people. You need to understand this if you're going to think about the controversy correctly and properly. So we've met Obadiah. Who else is in this text, the whole, the whole book? Well, main characters that me and you are going to get familiar with in the next three weeks go like this, okay? First, let's focus on Yahweh. Yahweh is a character in this book. God Lord, holy, just. God is the judge of all nations in this book. God is a savior, a deliverer, a conqueror, one who has set up his kingdom forever. He is mighty. And I hope when I just said all that, and we prayed prayers of praises, and you heard this read, that you can envision in the next three weeks an eagerness in you to grab the attributes of God and bury them deep into the recesses of your soul. I hope you are eager for this. But this is what it means to study a book like Obadiah. You must meet God in his divine judgment and wrath against people in this book. He has it. You need to ask yourself, and this is a slow one, 
So let me slow down. You ask yourself this question slowly and honestly as you encounter the Obadiah message in the next three weeks. Are you ready to receive the full unadulterated picture of a holy God, even if it means staring into his wrath and judgment? This is how God's people made themselves ready to receive words from the prophets. They thought of, I am learning about chiefly God. And we must come to the book of Obadiah with the same expectation if we're to really understand it. We must not forget Obadiah is the messenger. God is the message. Obadiah is the messenger, but God is the message. This is the theme of the whole Bible, friends, right? I mean, beloved, why do you read your Bible? Yes, to know Christ the Son and, and all it reveals. To what though? To what end is Christ revealed? To the glory of God. To the glory of God. And the Bible begins and ends with the glory of God in mind. And Obadiah shows up as a witness to the glory of God. And you will fail to make the right and necessary conclusions as to how God could love and hate until you can begin to understand that he is love and he is just. And Obadiah holds those in intention and we'll see that. Sometimes it is a direct exposure to God's holiness, and we need to be ready for that. Who's another character? Edom. Edom. Sometimes referred to in the book as Esau or Mount Esau. Edom was a small nation state at the time that this was written. So they're actual people with leadership in a nation, very small one, and they came from the descendants of Esau. And if you know Esau, that name, you know that that is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Our, our forefathers that we learn about in Genesis. Well, Isaac has two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the oldest, only by moments. Only by moments. And, and as he comes out, holding on to his heel is a close second, which we'll get to in a minute. But Esau, uh, the, the descendants of Esau, is who we are talking about when we talk about Edom. You need to know. Now, if you're looking at a map in your mind, you know where Israel is because you've seen it in the news and, and known it your life. I hope, you know, find your Bible map. But the city of Jerusalem and in, 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 in Judah, that's, that's, you know, in your mind. Well, just south and east of that is where the Edomites are, okay? They are geographically there. And they are the direct recipients of God's judgment in this prophetic message. So when we think of Edom in the weeks to come, we are thinking about the ones that are directly receiving this. So this message is for them. It comes to Israel. It is for them. Okay. And so it's, you know, Israel receives it and learns it. But the Edomites are who are the recipients of what is talked about in this letter. The book of Obadiah answers a lot of difficult questions. And one, and the main one, and this is connected to the characters, and so you need to know, right, who fuels this controversy? Well, the Edomites. And the question that's asked is this, does God have enemies? Does God actually have enemies? Does God have enemies? The presentation of the actions and the sins of the Edomites is a point in case study that God does have enemies and he in fact has a very revealed plan for enemies of him. And we need to know that. Who else is in this book? We have Yahweh. We have the Edomites. We also have Judah. Tell you what, everybody say Judah. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes referred to as Jacob. Sometimes referred to as Jerusalem. Sometimes referred to as Mount Zion. These are the children of promise. These are God's chosen children. These are the descendants of Jacob. You just heard about him a while ago, but I'll remind you. Isaac has two sons, twin boys. Esau was the firstborn right behind him. Second to him was the deceiver, Jacob. That's what his name means, right? And, and he, he was holding on to the heel of, of his brother. Can you imagine it? It's an incredible thought. But he comes in just moments later and the nation of Israel as a people are chosen by God, and that is in view when they are referenced throughout this book. They are the direct recipients of the promised hope of this prophetic message. Okay, If the recipients of what this letter is about in its totality is Edom, the kind of implicit recipients of what this letter is also about, which is God's chosen people, 
This is who receives that portion, Jacob, those who are in the promise. Now listen, this does not justify their great wickedness. And you need to know that when you study Obadiah because the, the fight for Obadiah is not to just have this deep rest in the, the promised, I'm a chosen one of God because of its context. Here's why I say that. Okay, it's, it's, it's a scandalous reality in this book that God, holy and pure, would even choose to love such a broken people. And their context tells them that. When Obadiah gives this message and we date it, we know that the most likely date from what is in the text and what surrounds it in the Bible is around 586 BC. Now, that is a random fact, right? But it's not. It's a historical fact because around 586 BC is when the fall of Jerusalem happened to the Babylonians, to a major power in that part of the world that had finally taken control, burned Jerusalem as a city, pillaged its walls, broke them down, took its people captive and carried them off into an exile. The nation of Israel came to a ceasing halt in its, in its ability in this time. And we know and need to understand the influence in this controversy. You see verse 11 in the text, there are, uh, they are the strangers and foreigners. That is Babylon, all right? That's Babylon. And they're like a sub-character in this book. It mentions them, right? Though they're unnamed, they're called the, the stranger and the foreigner because as the book talks, as God says, Edom, you've done these things to your brother Jacob. You've done it, we know, in a time when a whole nother enemy has been doing it far worse. You need to ask yourself when you study Jacob in this book, why has that enemy done it worse than even the Edomites who this judgment is for? Because of the people's rebellion. Because the people of Jacob, the chosen children of God, the ones that God picked out of his own accord, not because they were a mighty nation, not because they were beautiful, not because they were smart, but because he was God and he would have them for his own. They have received from him the law and not walked in it. They have in their own eyes done what was right and they have forsaken God and they have chosen idolatry. They've broken all of his commands. Hosea has witnessed to them that they're like a harlot. They're worse than a prostitute. They have given themselves over to everything else but him. And in his love, he has sent the Babylonians to them. This is why you should read Joel and Amos and Obadiah. You should read them in succession because this is a minor prophet book of seven. They called it the book of the seven. And minor doesn't mean weaker or not as good as compared to the major prophets, it actually means that it is smaller, and that's it. But it is of the same value and proportion as contemporary major prophets like who had longer careers like Jeremiah and Isaiah. It is on par with them to say, Israel, you are chosen, you are loved of God, you are children of the promise, but you have ruined your life pursuing everything but God. And now you will, you will sow to the you who have sown to the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. So this is in view. And it's weighty. So yes, Jacob is mentioned briefly. But you've got to understand the context to realize the whole book is about God's chosen people and what they do when they are outside of the promises. They are experiencing suffering. And worse than that, their very brother has begun to betray and hurt them. And what should they think? What should they think of God? You know your characters. That's who's involved in the controversy. I do want to zoom in on one element this morning to really understand what fuels this before we move on. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Do you see that? This is why we date the book like we do. This is why we understand it. These verses right there, 10, 11, they are giving us in, within the text itself uh, you Bible studiers, they are, they are giving us the context. Edom and Judah as nations are like Jacob and Esau as brothers. Necessary background reading to this prophecy. Read this as a family if you, if you have kids. Read this individually on your own. Go to Genesis 25. Write down Genesis 25 through 27. Read chapters in Genesis like Genesis 32 and 33. When you read them, if you take the time to do it, uh, we don't have time to do it today, we need to realize that in many ways, the judgment of God against Edom in this prophecy at this time, its fruit 
from a connected, long patience in God to the roots of how these brothers failed to love one another. Jacob and Esau and their story is a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking tale of a dysfunctional home. It is a household that had the truth and then it just got shattered on the selfishness of sin. And it is a story about a mother and a father, Isaac and Rebecca, that cannot control the errorous, erroneous, evil desires of a wild donkey of a child, Esau, and could not also control, despite their misunderstanding, because no one in Scripture can really explain, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it perfectly. But Jacob, this, this deceiver, this liar, this, this not even really favored one by his own father, is this, is this chosen one, and yet he's a, a lying scum, and, and the, the horrible disconnect that mom and dad can't get on the same page, birthrights are stolen, the orders are flipped, everything natural feels unnatural. This is the weight of a story that was, as God said when she was big and pregnant with both of them, two nations at war within one another. And then from these babies, we do see comes a nation, the people of Israel. Jacob becomes, uh, becomes Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Those 12 sons, one of them, Judah, is the, is the continued line of the promise. God's not done. Why do I bring all this up, okay? We don't have time to get into it, but I want you to feel the family dynamics that are involved even in this book as you overview it because you need to see that when the promised saviors are ascending Zion at the hopeful end of this book, they're not to point you back to some ability of, of, of a people to do something perfectly. They're to point you past the long patience of God to deal with a people that imperfectly trusted him to see the one who finally sits at the very top of that hill in Zion. Okay? They're pointing you back to the garden, pointing you back to the God who created all things. They also will point to you another direction, which we're about to get to. You can imagine who ascends, though, to the very top of the highest hill and reigns in Zion, can't you? Obadiah is the fruit of Cain murdering Abel. Obadiah is the fruit of Lamech killing a young man and boasting about it. Obadiah is the fruit of Jacob deceiving Esau. Obadiah is the failured mark of, I, am I my brother's keeper? All these things are who are in the controversy. You know, they say there's no fight worse than a family fight. <laughs> well, this is no exception. And that's who fuels the controversy generally. It's how these characters are going to fit in the weeks to come. Now, who fights in the controversy? Let's deal with the content and how it fits, okay? Who fights? Now, now that we know who I, you know, fuels it, I, I want us to take a moment and really grapple with the content. Who fights in this? Well, this is about a time when nations warred around Israel and Edom, okay? And so though it is a historical reality, what you actually hold as you sit here today and you think about you know, spending time with this in the next weeks when we preach it or in your personal time, you actually hold mainly poetry. <laughs> and you need to think about that as we overview this, dealing with this content. Obadiah is Hebrew poetry. It is syntax that is metered. It has a rhythm it has a presentation. It, it, it breathes heavy like a Hebrew word would at times. And other times it's intentionally pointed and pithy. Now, I'm not saying you need to go get a degree in Hebrew in the next three weeks because the guy preaching it doesn't have that. It's not a requirement, but it is an acknowledgement. You do need to realize the limit and you need to understand and trust your Bible. But you need to try to fight to really think, why did God choose to give the message like this? It's an oracle. Okay? Now, an oracle is defined as, quote, communications from God, and the term refers both to divine responses to a question asked of God, so oracles can be God asking a question, or also pronouncements made by God without him being asked. <laughs> in our context, nobody in their history in 586 was asking God rightly. So Obadiah spins it. He says, in their inability, Esau, to do the right thing, Jacob, to live as a chosen people, God said. <laughs> and, that, and he received. That's why it's judgment. That's why it's so harsh. Because God is not asking. Uh, he's telling without being asked. Now, pronouncements like this in their content come to us 
in these literary devices called poetry. Now, it only is till verse 18. If you look in your Bibles, I know it always, when you see poetry, Obadiah looks different, right? You can see it almost looks like a poem. But look at 19. I know it keeps that same form. But do you notice that 19 and 20, before 21, kind of re-engages with more like poetic literary device? 19 and 20 are just very didactic. You see that? It's called prose. So prose is not as, as poetic. It's not driving home a point with poetry. It's letting you know some facts. And then we finish the book with a little bit of a mix, prose slash poetry in verse 21. Pulling away from the weeds, let me explain why this matters. This means that when me and you meet today, when we meet in the weeks to come, we need to dig underneath uh, the poetry and we really need to understand what informs it. Okay, we gotta dig, guys. We cannot be lazy. I'm not allowed to be a lazy preacher in this. You're not allowed to be a lazy listener. Okay, we gotta get good sleep. We got to stop getting sick, so y'all pray, right? And we got we to gotta come together, and we have to dig deep, and we have to understand this book together if we're going to really understand the poetry here. Let me give you two examples from our day that I think would struggle, uh, that, that would help us understand some struggle we may face in translation. Let me give you a nonviolent example first. You've heard people say things when it's raining really hard, right? So you've heard people say, like, man, it's raining cats and dogs outside, That makes perfect sense to you. It invokes something, right? If you're a a redneck like my crude family was, you know, it's raining harder than a cow peeing on a flat rock. You know, yeah, that's ridiculous, right? But what are we doing there? And kids, you got to listen more. I I rarely give you those. Those are the moments for y'all to laugh about when I said pee in church, okay? Regardless, though, why do we use such device, such poetic language? Why do we elevate rain to something like that? It's not different than the last rainstorm you saw. So why? Well, because you are you and the rain is affecting everything in that moment. You at least acknowledge how tremendous and how huge it is and how, how it's a deluge and it's, it's going to overcome us. And you think about things in poetry in this term. A violent example from our own history. You know, over 20 years ago when we invaded, Af- invaded Afghanistan, we called those Marines the tip of the spear. They were the tip of the spear. Why? Because they were the first ones to plunge into the, the violent retribution we wanted to take on people that would you know, murder our own fellow Americans, right? Why did that language help us instead of just a historical understanding of these were the first recon men sent into this specific geographical area to you know, eradicate the issues of you know, our, current, our current plagues? What's different than that from the tip of the spear, we, we, with the tip of the spear, understand the concept, but we apply how it should affect us and how it should call us to arms together and how we should really believe it together. And this is the power of words and the power of poetry. Amazing, right? Uh, God decides to give his judgments and his oracles, and he decides to give the truth from heaven in this form. I mean, God could have just said very simply and, and all in prose here what his, what his divine plan is for Edom and for, Jacob, for Judah, right? But he doesn't do that. He layers it. You have to go to the eagle's nest and you have to sit on the high place with the people of Edom. You have to be like a proud praying eagle soaring over your enemies in your lofty, lofty place thinking pridefully that you will never get gotten up here so that you can see God humble them. And God intentionally wants to interact with us on this level. So in preaching and studying this book, a key expositional commitment that we all have to have is understanding it. Proverbs says it like this. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. People get discouraged in their Bible reading plans because they meet books like Obadiah. But I'm saying let's be a people that press into the Bible and say, if God does not think I can't do this because he saved me by Christ and he's given me his spirit, and this is how he chose to communicate, let me trust him and then grow together in community to understand what's here. For I will believe God that what is here will actually directly relate to me in the three weeks to come. You should think that way. For every promise in the scriptures is yours. So listen, behind each proper noun, comparison, illustration, or simile, there is a certain characteristic that's adding to the larger judgment against Edom. And remember, when you keep digging, it eventually will lead you to God. There is a larger understanding about God waiting for you on the turn of every poetic device. Now, the content is not only poetry in that sense. You need to understand it's also predictive. It's prophetic. And therefore, it makes promises. Now, I want to illustrate this for you, and I almost thought about getting a marker and drawing it, but you can do this in your mind. Feel free to close them if it helps you, uh, your eyes to draw this up. But 
Imagine a man that's standing, uh, you know, on the top of a mountain peak. And that's our prophet Obadiah. Okay, and he's received from God a message and he shares it with those that are there, right? Jesus goes up on the mountain. There's the disciples, right? So the word of God comes and it teaches and it's for that moment. You got to understand that about prophecy. A lot of what we're going to study, it affects their moment immediately. However, remember, he's on a mountain. And though they're there, in the background is a range of mountains. So as the word goes out, it goes over them, but it hits another peak out into the future. And that peak in the future is what is the promised destruction of Edom, okay? So our context now matters. It's a promise that this is going to happen. And even what's cool about prophecy is sometimes it will keep hitting mountain ranges. So when my, our brother read, you know, really perfectly uh, the, the, the idea of, you know, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You feel that? That's what's happening. We hope with Obadiah, if we understand it as promise, that not only is it true now, not only was it true then and now, but it will be in Christ. It was, right, for us. It will be on the final day. And this is how prophecy works. You, you have to learn to study it in these ways. It will speak to the moment. It will speak to the future. And it will even speak to the future's future. Can you expand your mind and heart enough to receive it? The implications of this are amazing. First Peter 1, when Peter's overwhelmed by it, in verse 24, he just says this, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, what? It endures forever. It remains forever. So the people that receive in Babylon, <laughs> like pagans are not worshiping Yahweh and they're no, they know they're supposed to be. And what do they do with such suffering? They believe, right? They press in and they trust that this word, the destruction of their brother that, that, that hated them, the destruction of all enemies as it is prophesied in this book, the drinking of all nations of God's judgment, that gave them hope. Why? Because God was going to do something. Do you see how they could die in exile under this kind of faith and do it well? You should. That's the hope of prophecy. This letter, if you can call it that, you know, to Israel, it's birthed out of the lamenting cry of we're captured, right? If they're to believe this, if they're to receive it in that moment from Obadiah and then internalize and then believe it together, it would turn into the Psalms that we know and form this book. Like Psalm 79, I believe. My notes, my notes don't have the reference. They'll come in the future weeks. I'm sorry, but I think it's Psalm 79. There's a couple of others. There's, there's lamenting cries that, that come out of the Psalms and they're, they're, they're saying, we're captured, we're tortured, we're suffering as your people. Don't forget us. And they can pray that way, crying out to God to help them, to hear them, to heal them, to stop the hands and the mouths of their enemies. Why? Because they believe that one day he will. Right? One day there will be an established kingdom. It's a future hope. Obadiah's moment is a moment of suffering for the people of God. That makes this book a companion to any and everyone who is a sufferer for God. And I mean any and everyone all the way to 2022. So let me ask you this question. Will you let this book minister to you in your suffering? It's a small enough room. I know some of you in this way. You've shared with me or I've lived life with you. Will you learn in such a way to minister to those around you who face pain and do it? Will you be there when it's just pointedly clear that yes, we're understanding the context and we're applying it. And yes, we see the listener that received it and they had they met God and that's great. And, and yes, you know, the church saw its fulfillment of this in Christ when he came. And yes, we still see that Christ is enough. But what about today when we're so strapped with grief and we're so ruined by pain and we feel so under the weight of suffering, will we also grab Obadiah together and say, just as it was their promise, so is it mine? Hold fast, hold fast to God, hold fast to one another. This is the invitation of Obadiah. 
It deals with those who fight in a current controversy. And it deals with them to say, will you hold on to that great day, the final day of judgment, and will you do it together? Obadiah is going to believe despite the horrendous things going on. And I think we need to remember, nothing is outdated or unimportant about his short little prophecy. It is here for us. Some of you have seen horrible things or you've done horrible things. You can think of horrible things that have been done. A lot of them cry out for vengeance. They cry out for justice. They, you, know, you want what is wrong to be made right. Well, Obadiah is a whole 21 verses about a people that were experiencing that. You know, they want that. And God, in many ways, his wrath in this is the peace they need. They will not have peace until they can fully understand God's revealed wrath. That's a, that's a dangerous concept for us to dive into, but we must because it is where the Bible goes. All right, last point. It's the shortest. Who finishes this controversy? Who finishes this controversy? You know, we know what fuels it, right? I mean, we've looked at the people. And, you know, now we need to understand, okay, is there anyone who finishes it? Now, let's get it straight. Obadiah does not outright name Jesus. Okay? Obadiah does not outright name Jesus. Jesus, if I can be so bold as to say it, Jesus is not on the pages of Obadiah. However, Obadiah deals explicitly with covenantal understanding. And in that dealing with those in the covenant, the way God interacts with those in his covenant and who are not, we learn the core lessons we need to understand salvation by Christ alone. The principles we glean from the covenantal connections in this book are underlying everything about the understanding of the new covenant as presented to us in Christ. I love how one pastor puts it, quote, Obadiah's recipient reminds us that there is no forgiveness outside the means that God supplies by his covenants. Let me read that again. The recipients, remember we have Esau, we have Edom in mind. It's a judgment oracle. The ones that get this message, Obadiah reminds us that there is no forgiveness outside the means God supplies by his covenant. Do you think as we talk about the means God supplies to keep his covenant that we will get to Christ? You bet. You bet. Yeah, another theologian puts it this way. The only way to have access to forgiveness is through the covenant of God made to Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, to the whole world. Do you want access to the type of, of crazy, beautiful gospel kingdom proclaiming that did happen in Jesus where he said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, right? God so loved the world. Do you want such a big, huge, infinite, able, you know, just awesome love that could save to the uttermost? Then you study the particular, definite, clear decision of God to be patient for a long time with a certain people. That's what Obadiah wants you to do. Because if you'll gleam from the hints of covenant promise, you will have a right context for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You don't and you shy away, you will neuter and lighten the load of what it really means that God would do something like where we say, trust Jesus and believe and that's enough for salvation, right? It really is. It really is. We're not ashamed of it, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Well, how do we even know how it came to the Jew first? Obadiah and books like it. So this book will force us to grow in our understanding of the covenants, old and new, and how they fit together. How they show us the plan of God in redemptive history. How God's plan is big enough to include a whole 21 verses where he only gives us a really hard-to-stomach understanding of the non-elect. Do we dare? Do we dare think like this? God could be glorified in the judgment of a non-believer? Oh, it's heavy. It's hard. But it's here. How God promised, how God kept 
His promise, how God is keeping His promise. This book will solidify a right understanding of continuity between old and new. You won't be so foolish in the new to throw out the wrath of God in the Old Testament in the name of love, just like you won't be so foolish to only see the necessary need to understand fire and brimstone, God's wrath and judgment. Despite the love, you'll see a continuity, or at least you should. Obadiah seeks to aid that larger conversation that God has been having for for millenniums. And he continues to declare over his children. That being said, Jesus is and will always be the key to promises uncovered in any study of the books of the Bible, including Obadiah. And he is present on its pages implicitly. Today, I ask you to consider generally just some fulfillments of this oracle in him. Okay, you heard it read, but just, you know, imagine and look at it. It's two pages in your Bible, maybe one if you're using our Bibles, right? Ask yourself the question, who is it that sets us right when our family feuds are only wrong? Who ultimately can do that? Christ. Who sticks closer to us than any other when we have been abandoned by someone that was supposed to love us? Christ, who never abandoned. Even when Judas, his own closest friend, kissed him on the cheek. Ask yourself as we read this, who is a consuming fire? Who does the veil get lifted in glory on this earth as Moses and Elijah, the fulfillment of the prophets and the law are standing there and the glory of God shines through them like the sun and people, men, Peter and them, hide their faces because they can't behold this consuming fire that burns up the stubble of Edom. Who is that? Who has and was that kind of power but was consumed on our behalf? Who, who faced the ultimate separation from God's goodness in his, in his hour of atonement on our behalf? As you read this book, you must ask. Esau and Jacob may fight in this controversy, but the greater battle has already been won on behalf of the true children of promise by Christ. The reader must know this. Old and new saw this. They didn't say Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, you know, son of of uh, Mary you know, and Joseph, son of God, fully God, fully man. They didn't talk that way in Obadiah's day and prior, but they did by faith look forward to and believe as we look back and believe. And Jesus is here. In our study of Obadiah, we will see clearly and think deeply about Christ. You will learn that the Edomites were Edomans. And you've heard of an Edoman. That is Herod, who was the last ruling Edoman. Herod, who tried to kill the promised one, Christ, and was unsuccessful. His relative descendant who pronounced Jesus guilty. The sons of Esau were always trying to kill the the promised child of Judah. And in Christ's example, it was no different, except that it was ultimate. What about the day of the Lord? What about the day of the Lord? Jesus will come back. Do you believe it? Revelation is clear about his role in that day. He is the final judge, the swift retribution giver. We wait for him not to come back weak and meek and lowly as he did his first coming. We await the one with the sword out of his mouth, with a flame about him, on a white horse, riding with Adonai on his thigh, the king of kings, the lord of lords, swinging an absolute scepter over the nations that he rules and reigns right now. Obadiah will take us from the weeping serving servant of Isaiah that we do need to remember, but he will skip that and get to the absolute incredible reality that one day every right will be wrong. This King Jesus is coming back. The day of the Lord, it will serve us if we think of Jesus. He's there. And just as I tell you about that, isn't it amazing that the nations will drink the judgment of God's wrath in this book? The nations will be judged, but don't me and you remember, even when we hear that, Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf for each of his elect children. What a gracious act of love. And look how the book ends. I mean, it's just screaming Jesus, isn't it? Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus ascended the hill of Calvary. Jesus ascended out of the grave and resurrection. Jesus ascended into heaven. He is the king, and the kingdom will forever be his. Obadiah begs the question of a savior in anticipation of Jesus to come. And when Christ came, he said clearly, it is finished. Back to that train 
in Southern Baptist history, back to your own family's context and where you're struggling to understand controversy. Pick any area in your life where sin has began to crop its head as the one that is high and lofty and proud and you're confused by it. And then find in Jesus the words, it is finished. What do you find? You find hope. You find the end of all controversy. So in the next weeks to come, let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith to guide us through the message of Obadiah. Today we'll sing in response, God moves in a mysterious way. Blind unbelief is very sure to err. That's Edom. And scan its works or his works in vain, the blind unbelief. But listen, guys, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. You feel the mountain range in view there? The bud may have a bitter taste. Oh, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray and sing that together and maybe make it a request to God for the next few weeks that he would write Obadiah on your heart that you indeed may not sin against him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the vision of Obadiah. Thank you for the hope that we anticipate even having. Thank you that it begs the question of who do you have enemies? The New Testament has told us, God, we were your enemies. All mankind has de declared themselves an enemy in our rebellion. Thank you for being the God who dies for the villain the one who loves us so perfectly despite our absolute imperfections. May the vision of wrath of Obadiah, Obadiah's message about Edom, may it be a sober warning to any listener who comes in here in the next few weeks. May it be a warning to our children that lack faith. May it be a warning to the adult here who maybe even today is just walking in insecurity. Or may we see that your wrath and judgment are severe. But there are to be understood by us in Christ, to point us to the severity of your mercy. Our, our sin is great. Your mercy, it really is more. So as we sing about the mysterious ways in which you move in our own lives, through history, and as we consider doing that in the next few weeks together, we pray that you would, one, get all the glory. We pray that, two, you would conform us to the image of Christ we pray that three, you would make us a witness to the resurrection and a, and a person who tells of your excellencies. And we ask that you would do that in accordance with Jesus. So we ask in his name. Amen.